Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, I do want to remind you also, um, each week we've been providing for you the Growing Beyond Sunday one-page devotional guides you can get at the resource table on your way out that give you a little bit more personal application of how you can take this message and apply it throughout your life in the coming week. Exodus chapter 19. Uh, many of you have probably traveled outside the United States and gone to foreign countries, and you remember the very first time you entered foreign soil. When I was a, um, just after I just graduated from high school in 1990, that summer I spent the summer as a foreign exchange student in the country of France. And I remember, it's my first time really in a, in a major foreign country, and I remember getting off the plane in the Charles de Gaulle airport, and I remember being hit by the smell, the smell of diesel emission and body odor coming together to give you that wonderful, pungent welcome to the country of France. And I remember getting off the plane and being disoriented because everything was in a different language. And I had taken French all four years through high school, so I knew the language, but just kind of getting yourself acclimated. When you go to another country, things are distinctly different distinctly different. You've got different smells, different language, different food, different customs. Everything is different. Different ways of driving in traffic. It's all different. When I think about missionaries that leave America and they go to a foreign country, and they don't just go there just as a tourist, but they go and they plant their life in that country, and they have to learn the language and learn the customs, and and things are drastically different for them. And then when they come back to America, they experience culture shock because they realize how radically different America is. You see, when we go to foreign countries and you experience new experiences, things are just distinctly different. And different is good. Now, why do I bring up this issue of being distinctly, radically different? I'm going to leave you hanging on that. We're going to come back to that. But I want you to think about that whole idea of being different, radically different, distinctly different. Now, we're in the book of Exodus, and the Lord has graciously saved Israel by grace alone. You had the ten plagues. You had Passover. You had the blood of the lamb. You had the crossing of the Red Sea. The Lord has done an amazing work in their lives. And so it's been an eventful three months for the nation of Israel since they left Egypt. What have they experienced over the past three months of leaving Egypt? Well, the bitter water that got turned into sweet water. They had manna and quail come from heaven to provide for their needs every day. Moses struck the rock and water came gushing out, providing them enough to drink. They defeated the Amalekites in the desert, even though they had never been trained in warfare. A lot has happened in these three months. Now we come to a turning point in the book of Exodus. 
things are going to shift drastically, drastically, dramatically to the base of Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, where in, in just the next chapter, chapter 20, the nation of Israel will receive the Ten Commandments. But before they get there, we have to set the stage for what happens pretty much throughout the rest of the book of Exodus. So let's read together Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. Exodus 19, 1 through 6. Can we bring the house lights up just a little bit? Thank you. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. Here's the big idea, the central theme, the, the big thrust for today, what this passage teaches. The Lord has saved us by grace to become distinctly different from the world around us. Why has God saved us by grace? To become distinctly different than the world around us. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, in order to be distinctly different. Now, in verses 1 and 2, we see the transition here of what's going on in the book of Exodus. They've left Egypt. They're now at the base of the mountain, Sinai, the mountain of God. And Moses brings the full number of the Israelites back to this mountain where he had received the message the first time at the burning bush. And this is a fulfillment of God's promise to him that the entire nation would come back. It goes all the way back to Exodus 3.12. God said to him, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Here they are at this mountain. Egypt has been, they've left Egypt, and, and, and now they're here at the mountain. So the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, will serve as the central location for the next portion of the book of Exodus. It's where they're going to be spending a lot of time. And yet, before Moses goes up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, the Lord commissions Moses to preach a sermon to the Israelites. Look at verse 3. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, You shall tell the people of Israel. Go down to verse 6. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. 
Now, the actual content of the sermon is in verses 4 through 6, but it's bookended with, this is what you're going to tell Israel. This is what you should say to Israel. This is a formal sermon that serves as the heart of the book of Exodus. And so what the nation must do is listen to the authoritative voice of God as his shepherd prophet Moses preaches to them. Now, I find it very interesting that God ordains for Moses to preach a message to them as the primary way to communicate glorious truths to Israel. And it's the same for us today. How has God chosen for us to receive His glorious truths? Through the preaching of the Word. God has ordained preaching as the primary means for us to receive His Word. And Israel must receive that Word. This is not Moses' opinion. This is not something Moses made up. This comes with the direct authority from God himself, and Israel must listen. So if this is a sermon, what's the content of the sermon that Moses preaches? Now, I will tell you this. Moses is a good Baptist preacher because he has three points. Not a poem, though, just three points. It's the old joke, three points in a poem. It's a three-point sermon that Moses preaches to the Israelites. And these three truths that Moses is going to preach set the trajectory for everything here on out that we're going to study in the book of Exodus. It's vitally important that we understand these words here. This is the heart of the book of Exodus. If we don't get this correct, we're not going to get the Ten Commandments correct. So what are the points of Moses' sermon? Here's point number one that Moses gives us. First of all, the Lord saved Israel by sovereign grace. The Lord saved Israel by sovereign grace. In verse 4, the first thing that Moses says to the nation is, You have seen what the Lord did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. All in the past tense of what God had done to save Israel. And he gives three descriptions. In this point number one that Moses says, the Lord has saved you, he gives three descriptions or three ways that the Lord has done that. First of all, notice what he says. You saw what the Lord did to the Egyptians. What did God do to the Egyptians? He systematically humiliated the Egyptians with the ten plagues, one by one by one, exposing all their false gods and eventually drowning them in the Red Sea. You saw it with your own eyes, Israel, how I humiliated Egypt because of their idolatry. You saw what I did to the Egyptians. But notice number two, you also notice that I bore you on eagle's wings. That's a beautiful imagery. I bore you on eagle's wings. All throughout the Old Testament, sometimes God the Father is shown as this, this metaphor is an eagle. Now, an eagle is a powerful bird, a graceful bird, a swift bird. And if you think about the nation of Israel, they were, if you will, hatched in the fires of Egypt. And what did God do? God, like a, like a loving fatherly eagle, takes and plucks his little eaglets out of Egyptian slavery, and he carries them on eagle's wings 
and brings them to salvation. An eagle covers its young. It protects its young. It's this picture of God's sovereignly, fatherly, tender protection, how God protected Israel. You see this in Deuteronomy 32, 10 through 11. He found him, that's Israel, in a desert land, And in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord is like this powerful, graceful eagle that protects Israel. It was read earlier, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. You saw what I did to the Egyptians. I bore you on eagles' wings. And then here's the third description that Moses says that God did. The Lord brought you to himself. It's a powerful statement that captures the essence of salvation. It's not so much that God geographically brought them to the base of Mount Sinai. God brought them to himself in covenant relationship. God entered into a relationship with the nation of Israel. So here's what Moses does first. Before Moses tells Israel to do anything, before he tells them to obey, before he gives them anything they're supposed to do, Moses announces to them what God has done past tense. God has saved them. God has brought them to himself. God has borne them on eagle's wings. God has delivered them. And that's exactly what God has done to you. If you are a follower of Christ, this is what God has done to you. God has delivered you out of Egyptian slavery, not so much in Egypt, but out of spiritual bondage. God has delivered you out of bondage and brought you freedom. God has borne you on eagle's wings to himself, and he gives you that security. And God has brought you to himself in salvation. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. Why did Jesus die on the cross and rise again? So that we might be brought to God. To have a relationship with God. It's very, very crucial that we understand the order here. The order is very, very crucial. Before God commands Israel to do anything, he announces to them salvation by grace alone. This is the pattern of salvation all throughout the Bible. Before God gives his law, he announces salvation. God saves first, and then after salvation, he tells us how we are to live. So that's point number one of Moses' sermon. Israel, God has saved you by grace. Here's point number two of Moses' sermon. Second, as those saved by grace, Israel must respond to the Lord with joyful obedience. Now, notice what Moses does not say. If 
you prove your worth to me, Israel, and do the best you can to obey, then I will deliver you from Egypt. Then I will bear you on eagles' wings. Then I will bring you to myself. Is that the order? No, the order is I've already done all this. I've brought you to myself. I've saved you by grace. As a response to that salvation, you must then respond with joyful obedience. If if Israel had to prove their worth in order for God to save them, that would not be grace. That would be works. Paul tells us very clearly in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right, let's just do a little test here this morning, Emmanuel Baptist Church. Are you saved by works? No. Are you saved by grace? After you're saved by grace, does God expect you to do good works? And do those, do, those good works come from God's grace in you, providing the power to do that? That's the pattern here. Okay? God saves Israel by grace, and then he has this if-then statement here. If you will obey my voice, and if you will keep my covenant, you'll be my people. Now, I'm not going to spend time on what this means to obey God's voice and keep his covenant, because God's going to be very specific in chapter 20. It's the Ten Commandments. We're going to spend all summer on the Ten Commandments because there are ten of them. Each week, a different commandment. We don't know enough about the Ten Commandments in the Christian life. How does a Christian relate to the Ten Commandments? What's the role of the Ten Commandments in the life of the Christian? Uh, we're going to get to that, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. Needless to say, there's, a, there's an if-then statement here about obedience to the Lord. So, point number one, Israel, you've been saved by grace. Point number two, Since you've been saved by grace, you respond with joyful obedience. But here's point number three. Israel will experience the Lord's blessing when they live out this new identity. Now, they don't do this in order to become saved. They're already saved by grace. What they do is they get to experience the blessing of that salvation. So we're talking about identity here. Who who is the identity that God has made the Israelites? And and he gives them three identity markers, three titles, three descriptions that God confers. This is the first time God confers this upon Israel in the Old Testament. So these identity markers. Who is Israel? Who are they to be? Who are they to be becoming? These are glorious titles of honor that God gives to Israel. Here's the first. They will be a treasured possession. Okay, you look at verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine. Now, we can't skip the beauty of this description of a treasured possession. Let me ask you a question. Was God obligated to save Israel? Was there any merit or worth or goodness in Israel that moved or motivated God to love them or choose them or save them over any other nations? In other words, was Israel any better than the Egyptians? No, they were all sinners at the the foot of the cross. There was nothing in Israel that made God love them. So you ask the question, why did God choose to save Israel? Let me give you the answer. Because God chose to save Israel. Why did God choose to save you? 
because God chose to save you. Was there anything in you that made God do it? No. Listen to this, Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. God gives the answer to Israel, and it's the same for us. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why did God save you? Because God loved you. Why did God love you? I have no idea because I know he doesn't love me because it's anything in me that makes him love me. It's simply God's character to love. This whole idea of being taken as a treasured possession really signifies this whole idea of adoption. God took Israel and adopted them into himself, brought them into his family, made them this treasured, adopted people. It's not because they were all that. It's not because they were worthy. It's not because they merited it. It was simply because God says, you know what? I'm going to take you to myself because I love you. Now listen to Titus 2.14. This is what Jesus has done to us. Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Never, ever get over the joyous truth that God has made you his treasured possession. That God adopted you and brought you on eagle's wings to himself and set his love upon you. It wasn't because you were all that. It's because God's all that, and he chose to love you in spite of yourself. Never get over the fact that God has taken you as his treasured possession. Because what did we deserve? Punishment, separation. Instead, God shows us mercy. So that's the first identity marker, a treasured possession. Okay, secondly, they're going to be a kingdom of priests, plural priests. Now, the priest in Israel did two things. Number one, they taught the people the word of God, so it was a word-based ministry. And number two, they did the sacrificial system of the bulls and the rams and the goats and all of the sacrificial system showing the need for an atonement. So if the whole nation is to be a kingdom of priests, what is the whole nation supposed to do? Well, the entire nation is supposed to fulfill this role of letting the nations know that they live by God's word and they need Jesus as a substitutionary atonement. So being a kingdom of priests is this idea that God had set Israel apart to be an example, a witness to the world around them. Do you know it was God's plan from the very beginning to incorporate the Gentiles into his plan of salvation? To bless all the nations? Genesis 12, 3. God speaking to Abraham back in the day, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then Isaiah 49, 6, he said, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. 
So here's really what it means for Israel to be a kingdom of priests. They are to be a light to the nations. They're to be an example to the nations. When the nations look in on Israel, they're to see a distinctly different people who obey God's word and show the need for the sacrifice that only comes through Jesus. That's the role of a kingdom of priests. But that's not it. A treasured possession, a kingdom of priests. What's the third identity marker? Verse 6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They would be a holy nation. Now, this is amazing to me because who alone is holy? God. God alone is holy. Um, Kyle and Dalich, they're two old German dead guys that have some good insight. But they said this, God is called the Holy One because he's altogether pure, the clear and spotless light, so that in the idea of the holiness of God, there are embodied the absolute moral purity and perfection of the divine nature and his unclouded glory. God alone is holy. Isaiah 6, 3. These seraphim are calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, God alone is holy. He's the three times holy God. But he says to Israel, you are going to be a holy nation. That means, Israel, you're going to be distinctly different than the nations around you. As a matter of fact, I'm going to give you 10 commandments that are going to set you apart from the nations around you. You're going to have different dietary laws. You're going to have different customs. You are going to be a distinctly, wholly different, radically unique nation among all the nations on earth because I'm setting you apart as holy. I like what one commentator has said about this. This phrase has stuck with me for a long time. He says, Israel, as a holy people, are to be a people set apart, different from all other people, by what they are and are becoming, a display people, a showcase to the world of how being in covenant with the Lord changes the people. I love the language there, a display people. Israel are to be a display people. What are they to display? They are to display God's glory. And they are to declare God's gospel to the nations around them. God set Israel apart to be on display for all the world to see how a people in relationship with the living God makes all the difference in the world. Now, let's just recap what God has done for Israel. God has chosen them to be his people. God has saved them to be his people. God has adopted them to be his people. God has borne them on eagles' wings and called them his treasured possession. God has set them apart as a kingdom of priests. God has set them apart as a holy nation to be distinctly different than the nations around them. This is Israel's identity, and it's their mission. It's their identity and mission. What's their identity? They're a display people. What's their mission? To declare the gospel. That is our exact identity and mission as well. Who are we as Christians today? We are a display people. We exist to display God's glory. What's our mission? We exist to declare God's gospel. Now, treasured possession, chosen race, holy nation, kingdom of priests. 
the Apostle Peter does something very interesting. In his first epistle, he takes these identity markers, these descriptions of Israel, and he applies it to us, Gentile church. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's who we are. Now, if that's who we are, what is our role today? What's our identity? What's our mission? How do we live out the identity of being a chosen people, a treasured possession, a holy nation? What, what do we do? Well, we look at what Israel did here, and we can get clues of how we are to live that out. So, what's the application this morning? It's very similar. Here's the first. First of all, like Israel, we must submit under the authority of God's preached word. Remember, this is a sermon preached by Moses. And God says to Moses, with all the authority of the living God, you're to say this to the people. And if God is speaking to the people, what's the assumption? The people must what? Listen. It's the same thing today. Now, I'm not Moses. Never pretend to be Moses. But God has ordained for pastors to preach the word so that we as his people can listen. So the key word here is submission. Submission under the authority of God's word. Listen to what Paul says to, 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 to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 3. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's the judge, the living, and the dead, and by his appearance in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own pastors. You do not need me up here to tell personal stories. You don't need a political speech. You don't need a motivational talk. You don't need a fireside chat. You don't need fads or opinions. What you need is the Word of God. Now, I don't preach to win a popularity contest. If I did, I'd lose a long time ago. What I need to do is to expose you to what the Word of God says. Here's the point. If you come into this place today and you do not hear from the living God, you're being shortchanged. You do not need to hear what Pastor Sean has to say. You need to hear what the living God has to say. And so we don't need technology. We don't need the latest and greatest in fads. We don't need a marketing plan. We don't need all of these fancy, slick things to somehow grow our church. We don't need opinion after opinion. What we need is the rock-solid promise that God speaks to his people through the preaching of his word. Do you realize that God is speaking to you when the word is preached? How many voices are you bombarded with each week? What do you hear each week? Satellite radio, internet, YouTube, Facebook, this and that, all over the place. You're, you're being bombarded with opinion after opinion, and some of that stuff may be good. But where else are you going to go to actually hear from God? From God. That's why we value at Emmanuel Baptist Church the authoritative preaching of God's word 
because we know that when the word of God is rightly preached, God uses that word to birth faith, to bring about repentance, to grow you, to strengthen you, to challenge you, to convict you, to transform you. So would we continue to be a church that submits under the authority of the preached word, the way Israel sat with anticipation when God spoke through Moses from the mountain the message they needed to hear. So that's the first thing. Second, like Israel, we should be a light to the nations. Like Israel, we should be a light to the nations. So the key word here is example. An example. Is your life compelling to others? Are you living an example to others? Are you a display person that others look at your life and they see something distinctly different and they look at you and they say, there's something different about you? Don't know quite exactly what it is, but there's something different. You're a light. You're an example. To a watching world. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Number one, are you submissive under God's word? Number two, are you a light? Are you an example to those around you? Here's the point. You're always an example to those around you. The question is, is it a good example or a bad example? Is it a positive witness or a negative witness? It's not whether you're a witness or not. It's not whether you're an example or not. People are watching your life. The question is, is what you're living out an example of godliness to those watching? Here's third. Like Israel... We must declare God's gospel to an unbelieving world. We've got to share the gospel with an unbelieving world. In that first Peter passage, it says we're to proclaim the excellencies. That word proclaim only shows up in the New Testament in that passage in Peter. And it means to publish, to broadcast, to, to put on a billboard, to, to splash around for everyone to see this proclaiming the excellencies of God. Proclaiming his power, proclaiming the gospel, the gospel to be a witness. Because what has God done? God has rescued us from darkness and brought us into his marvelous light. Do you realize, I know you realize this, but do you really, really realize there are people that are still living in darkness while you are living in the light? Where do those people need to come? They need to join us in the light. How are they going to know they're in darkness unless you go and tell them they're in darkness? Unless you go proclaim the excellencies. Unless you tell them, like Colossians 1, 13 and 14, He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There are people that you know living in hopelessness, living in darkness, living in despair, living in sin that need to be rescued. And God has ordained for you to be the one to go and share them. Listen, I came into the light. It wasn't because I was better than you. It's because God saved me and he can save you. Would you come out of darkness into the light? 
We need to be a people that declare that message. We broadcast that message. We publish abroad the message that people living in darkness can be brought into the light. Why would you keep that to yourself? If God has borne you on eagles' wings and brought you to himself, why would you not want to share with others how God can do that to them? So number one, are we submissive to the word? Number two, are you being an example, a positive, godly example? Number three, are you being one that witnesses, proclaims the excellencies? Here's the fourth application. Like Israel, we must serve the Lord as a distinctly holy people. A holy nation. We are a holy nation. Key word here is holiness. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 14-16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This doesn't mean that you're never going to sin. Doesn't mean that you're always going to be perfect, but what it means is the overall trajectory of your life is one that is radically, distinctly different than the world around you. That you are distinctly different. That you look different. You act differently. You think differently. That you live according to God's standards. Now, let's not forget the order of how God does all this. God never says, clean your act up and be holy enough in order to be saved. What's the order? I have saved you by grace. I've borne you on eagle's wings. I've brought you to myself. You're a treasured possession. You're a holy nation. You're a kingdom of priests. Now go live like that. Live out who you have become. God saves us by grace in order for us to be distinctly different than the world around us. A changed people with a glorious new identity. What type of people? Let's ask the question. I'm just ask these questions for you again, these four questions. Let you evaluate your life this morning in light of these four questions. Number one, are you a submissive person to the authoritative word of God? Do you submit yourself under God's word? Number two, are you an exemplary person? Are you an example? Are you a light? Are you a positive example to those around you? Number three, are you a witnessing person? Are you proclaiming the excellencies? Are you sharing the gospel to those that need hope? And number four, are you a holy person? Your lifestyle is radically, distinctly different than the world around you. If you are a Christian, this is who you are. It's who God has made you to be. This is your identity. Whether you like it or not, this is who you are. You're a treasured possession. You're a holy nation. You're a kingdom of priests. This is who you are. So you're not going out there to be something that you're not. But the point is, are you going to go out and live who you already is your life going to be radically, distinctly different? You've been saved by grace, not so you can hoard the gospel to yourself, but you've been saved by grace so that you can be so different, so radically different from the world around you. And when people look at you, they're a little confused. They're a little taken back. They're not sure what to make of you. 
And that can be a scary thing or it can be the greatest blessing because it could be that God is opening their eyes to the fact that they can have what you have. God's borne you on eagle's wings. God saved you by grace. God's taken you out of darkness and brought you into his light. Let's go out this week and live like we truly are with that glorious identity for his glory alone. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Father, we come into this room this morning and I pray that we have been having an attitude of of submissiveness under your word, that we were ready to hear your word, to receive your word, and to obey your word. And Lord, there may be some areas of challenge this morning that we need to repent of, that we need to own up to, and so Lord, help us to understand what your will is for us and search our hearts, expose any sin that we may have. Lord, let us ask those questions of ourselves. Are we living holy lives? Are we being positive, godly examples, lights to those around us? Are we sharing the gospel? Are we declaring your gospel to those in darkness? Are we being a people who live according to your word? Lord, help us be the people you've called us to be. And Lord, as we leave this place, help us to just have that image in our minds of being born on eagle's wings. As we go out of this place, Lord, we don't go out of here alone. We go out here on the wings of eagles. If we're weary, if we're faint, if we're growing tired, you you bear us up on wings like eagles. You give us strength. Through the power of your love, the power of your grace, may we leave this place empowered, may we leave this place encouraged to live radically, distinctly different lives for your glory by the grace you give us as we soar on eagles' wings. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.